Thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your word and the time in it. In your son's name, amen. 2 Corinthians, uh, or certain parts of certain books, can drop out of the general mix of where you go to try to edify the saints. Certain passages, you know, Philippians 4 or Romans 7, or where the big meaty stuff is. And everybody looks at 2 Corinthians and goes, isn't that the awkward book where Paul gets really off and on, positive, negative, upset. Let's stay away from that. Let alone the first chapter. I realized I, I just, my Bible just opened to Second Corinthians 1 this morning when I sat down in the library with my cup of coffee, opened my Bible, boom, Second Corinthians 1. I said, well, I'm just going to read it. It's going to insist on itself like that. And here we are in it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, it's not centered like that in your Bible. It's bad enough that you see that word comforted thrown at you 58 times in two verses or something like that, a lot. And so, you know, Paul's up to something here. The God of all comfort. That's, that's, man, you could go to the dollar store and go to the card section because you know you can get two cards for a buck there rather than spending $5.95 at Rose Hours or whatever you pay for a card. But you get to the religious section and sympathy and it could have, you know, the God of all comfort in, in a loopy, you know, um, nuptial script. So the person receiving the card with this very pastel photograph on it will feel comforted. You women understand that. Guys, that guys just don't even bother with sympathy cards. But we're, you know, some of us really like being comforted, right? Well, they, the guys are maybe the worst, worse than women when they get sick. Because, of course, then they'd be the big babies where they need to have the wife come in and fluff the pillows for them and comfort them and soothe their fevered brow. Little whiny voice. We understand that kind of comfort. And so, for immediately, our hearts leap a little bit because here's a sermon that sounds so positive, a passage that, well, heaven can't even ruin this. The God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort. Those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It just is a, as a theme, that's great. Now, Paul's in a slightly different circumstance than you. And he's speaking at a different level of understanding than we. You know, you have a bad hair day and your girlfriend comforts you. Now, We, when we get around to comforting, because we don't understand what Paul is saying or doing here, we don't know what we're saying or doing. When we, that's when you get those cards. A sympathy card. Their parent has just died. And you're saying, you're looking at the wife going, what do I say? What do I, in good heaven's name, do I write? And so the more vague and inconsequential, you know, um, saccharine-like something goes in the card. We're not really good at this comforting thing. We, we lose our moorings. We lose any 
substance about what we're doing. But here it says, we're not talking, we're talking about your theology here. It's the God of all comfort comforts you in your affliction. And we immediately think of the horizontal sociological comfort we give one another. Now, that's given to one another, but only after you have been comforted by God, then you take that comfort. You know, what's it say in 1 John? I have the reference here, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Because if you love, not thinking as God first loved you, what are you going to do with your love? You're going to come up with a romantic love, a friendship love, a family love. You're going to come up with some, some cheap human thing that you call love. And the same is true with comfort. We comfort because we were comforted. And in that comfort, we were comforted by God. We understand comfort and we comfort you. Look at that, verse 4 so that we may be able to comfort. Everybody thinks they've got a natural ability to fluff the pillows of somebody in a despondent circumstance or going through a bad moment. Anything from death or, or loss or um, whatever they get worked up about. We have to be made able, and to be made able, it has got to be your theology, not in the bad sense theology, not in the theology that gets into an argument someplace, but what you know of your God. He says in verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So, you're backing away from a bad hair day. You're probably backing away from great-grandma Betty dying of something, old age, at 98. Oh, sad. Yeah, she used to give you some socks at Christmas, and so you're, you're kind of sad. You, death just flips you out, so you weep anyway. Not that kind. That wasn't suffering. That's just life. If you have a hard time, if you need comfort to get through life, which for 6,000 years people have been getting born, getting married, bearing children, dying. But these are not those sufferings. It's not you not having a clue about what, the way the world works. It's you being in a situa situation where you have shared abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. That means the Roman uh, proconsul has called you in and he's decided to have a few lictors work you over with a few sticks to beat you, perhaps to kill you. They shared abundantly in the sufferings with Christ. Spend some time don't read, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs is not something I'd recommend necessarily because I think there's a huge degree of Grimm's fairy tales in Fox's. But you can read some early histories of the church and uh, uh, Polycarp or uh, even uh, letters of Trajan and Pliny to Romans about writing about the Christians and what they're going to have to do. Very, very sensible non-believing people that realize, yeah, if they don't deny this, we're going to have to kill them. You know, just that. But they were very, very sensible people. But these were on the receiving end of that. People in Bithynia, this was the province of Bithynia, um, were on the receiving end of being put to death for not denying Jesus Christ. If we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So not only is the comfort from God a teaching experience that you pass on to others, but the comfort is tied to the suffering.
One thing you have to realize is there's no, there seems like there's not a whole lot of places to stand where comfort does not come to you in this situation. You don't say, I am suffering and it's just, that's the end of it. I'm going to be suffering for, for Christ. It isn't that noble. No, I'm suffering and maybe as abundantly as that could be. And well, we have a pastor from Boise in prison in Tehran, and they don't seem to be inclined to let him go. And he could die. He could live out the rest of his days in a prison in Tehran. From Idaho. Doesn't matter what the news media says. They don't want to let him go. They might just kill him. Did I mention he was from Idaho? That's almost your neighbor. Some of you may know him. I don't know. Did anybody know? Guy, I think it was Calvary Chapel. Was there? Did you? Knows a guy who knows the guy. We're not just called to suffer. We're called to have abundant comfort placed on us in answer to the suffering. If we are afflicted, verse 6, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. A few things you have to recognize about this comfort. Again, it's not just a passage to put on a card that you don't know what to write to someone whose mother died. This is... not just you stealing yourself against possible persecution. You may have been in conversations like that already where, you know, ISIS is crucifying people for being Christians and cutting off little children's heads because they're Christians and they don't care. They don't care. And you start to go, oh my gosh, you mean... And then the, the FBI director, I said, I think a couple weeks ago, said there are 900 open cases of ISIS-related problems in the United States. And in every one of the 50 states, there is an ISIS-related problem. ISIS. Those are the guys that kill people without compunction for their faith. Now, this is not that conversation over a few beers with your friends, where you try to talk yourself up into some noble ability to give your life for Jesus Christ. That's fine to do. But this is you processing not the most stoic, manly way to go out, but you processing the most comforted way to go out. Yes, you could die for Jesus Christ. Your sufferings could be abundant. But the task here in this passage is finding the path to that abundant, equivalently abundant comfort. This is the path comfort takes. Some translations, if you look in your own Bibles, this is the RSV, but some say consolation, which is also a legitimate translation. Um, comfort, again, you get the fluffed pillows sort of quality with comfort. Consolation, you get that phrase, consolation prize. What's a consolation prize? One you don't want. You lost, here's a ribbon. This is, find another word. If you, I don't know if you can find another word. This is abundant comfort, not making you not hurt anymore. That might be part of it, but that's not what it's dealing with. He says, you will be comforted. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently, in red, endure the same sufferings that we suffer. You experience when you patiently endure the suffering. There's a suggestion there that, one, the presence of a virtue that can wait out, the, the, you might say, the 
the worst part of pain for human beings is that we understand time. And when you have a toothache, does it come to your mind that this will never end? What if it never ends? Time starts to slow down. It always happens to you on a Saturday night. There are no dentists who want to come fix your face middle of the night. You start self-medicating, trying to knock yourself out. I mean, you get like, you know, Tom Hanks and Castaway, where you're knocking a tooth out with an ice skate. You're desperate. But there's something about what we're dealing with here. Again, this is not fluffing the pillows or a friend who's had a bad hair day or even the normal losses in life. We're so affluent, the normal losses scare us. But patiently enduring the same sufferings that we suffer, your comfort comes to you in that. How? Because we always view comfort fixes it. Comfort makes it go away, right? You don't feel it anymore. Please make me comfortable. Give me morphine. Give me drugs. Give, make me not have this go on. Christian comfort seems to be different than that. Something about what it is, the God of all comfort is the source of this. This is not what you do for someone else. This is what God has written for us all to give to each other. And in that, that sharing of it back and forth, if we're comforted, you get comforted. If we're afflicted, you get comforted. Comfort always comes through this situation, but it is one which is rooted somehow in something other than what we normally think. Now, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Well, not cheat. I want to tell you something. This, this is confusing, Evan. Not confusing, Evan. This is confusing, comma, Evan. Quit confusing us. Pick an easier to understand passage. What am I supposed to do with this? Do I have to parse these sentences all the way down the page? Well, yes, yes, you do. But I want you to see something at the bottom of the page. Verse 13. For we write you nothing but what you can read and understand. Oh. That's what he, one of the things he's getting to. We're not, we're not writing you anything you can't figure out. Come on, Come on guys. What do you want in this? We want, what was it when, when we were young? I don't, I don't know if you know if this exists anymore. Bactine? Does Bactine exist? A Bactine, Bactine, little, little Evan running down the sidewalk in his Ked super flyers or whatever they were, trips, because he would, skins his knee, wailing, mother comes out, not a lot of sympathy there, but she had Bactine. Knock the big chunks of gravel out of your knee and spray it on there. Stung and nothing. It was like spraying aspirin on, on parts of your... The pain went away. That's what moms did. You know, kiss it to make it feel better. That's how we've defined it. I can't be comforted while in pain. Back to verse 6. When you patiently endure. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So what are we, what are we picking up here about this kind of comfort? I hear on the left-hand side, I say, well, the minds that are comforted know 
There is a process that is abundantly adequate. It's in his patience. It's in its hope. And the hope, just hope alone, patience as an aspect of your comfort, patience as an aspect of your comfort, and hope as an aspect of your comfort, both are words that do not deliver you from the circumstance. Hope that is seen is not hope. Romans 8. Hope that is seen is not hope. What happens to that toothache when somebody offers you real, believable hope? They've stripped you of that sensation, this will never end. It hasn't ended, it still hurts. But the despair, the loss, the sense of nothing is coming, ever. There's an element, knowing the whole process of comfort, knowing from who it comes, and how it gets to us in this shared moment, this, this Christian membership with each other, that one member suffers, we all suffer together. One member is comforted, we're all comforted together. We share, we share this. It's more than adequate. It's a frame of mind that goes from despair to consolation. Without changing you might say, the, what's happening on the ground? What's going on right now? How much it hurts. So you're on, you're being tied to a stake in the middle of the Colosseum. They're just looking all over for extra firewood. You, so this doesn't look good. So what do we do? How do we look at this to gain this ability? So that when we look to praying for those who are being persecuted in other parts of the world. That you'd pray rightly. That you'd pray to gain in the same way, the same kind of comfort from them, learning from them this consolation. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, what you have to remember is where we are in this moment. Third missionary journey. Second Corinthians, probably written from Macedonia. Consider the opening in the chancel to be the Aegean, right? Roughly. Corinth is right there. The Peloponnese, Sparta down below it, Athens above it. Corinth is in Greece. Ephesus is right over here. This is Asia, right here. Macedonia is right there. That's Philippi and Thessalonica, those cities. And when he was in Asia, having already been to Corinth on the second missionary journey, and then the Corinthian church started experiencing problems that rejected Paul, all sorts of things went wrong. Paul is really concerned about the Corinthian church. While he is in Ephesus teaching for three years, then the riots in Ephesus occur, and the whole city goes to pieces, and they are concerned for the life of Paul. All the while, he's really concerned about what's going on in Corinth. And so he goes to Macedonia to wait for Titus to come back with news of what his letter to Corinth, what kind of effect it had. And it turns out it had good effect. And he got good news. But he says, While we, what we experienced in Asia, I don't want you to not know over here what was going on over there. For we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Why, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Okay, again, not a low grade on an exam. Not some old bestie, bestie of friends cutting you at a party, stealing your boyfriend or girlfriend. Not bad news of any other sort. We're, we're talking about a city rioting, ready to kill the Christians. 
At the same time, Paul getting the rejection that he ends up later on getting rejected by the saints in Asia. All the while, the non-Christians trying to kill you. That's just not a good week for Paul at any point. Utterly, unbearably crushed that life itself was not something we hoped for. If you want to read up on that section, that's Acts 19. But that, verse 9, why we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. There's a passage spring to mind. Do not fear him who can kill the body, but after that has, can, can do nothing. But fear him, rather, I tell you, once he has killed, can cast both body and soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is the opposite side of that equation. We do not fear those who can kill the body because we believe in a God who can raise the dead. What does, that, what does that do in your comfort moment? Because your fears and your despair and your loss is because what is being whispered in your ear when things are going bad to worse, when you're perhaps going to be put to death. Is there's no hope. Your faith in tomorrow is more chanted in the Apostles' Creed. It's something you know Christians believe that God is in charge of tomorrow. Yeah, you believe that the church believes that, but do you believe that? He says this was so bad it was there so that we would learn something. That was to make us rely not on ourselves. Because all of our other comforts come at the hands of what someone can do for you. Visit you in prison, bring you some oatmeal, fluff your pillows. Nothing wrong with that. It's nice to do that for somebody. It's nice for the wife to come in when you're moaning about your head cold and, and bring you some soup. That's nice. But that comfort which you took has nothing to do with this comfort. This comfort is from the God of all comfort who he has comforted you by something. And not by just delivering you. Delivering you is one of the possibilities. It is what happens here. It says, he delivered us from so deadly a peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. But the wonderful thing is, once you have God firmly placed as someone who can raise the dead, he's got everything this side of them killing you. He can do, you know, they can't really reach the limit of your Savior. The, the, where your hope is, you say, well, it's really hard to believe. Well, I didn't ask if you believed it. I'm just saying this is what it says. This is where your hope sits. If you do not believe in this God, it's called not being a Christian. Because this is what faith is. You believe in the God. Well, what is it? The Hebrews passage? Hebrews... 11, 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he, was he who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your descendants be named. He's about to kill his son that he had waited a hundred years for, because God asked for it as a sacrifice, and he didn't withhold him, because... Verse 19, he considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. Just like here. You have a God who raises the dead. 
It's not an identifier, you know, that says, well, we're Christians, we believe in God who raises the dead. No, in this situation where the Ephesians were about to kill Paul if they could get their hands on him, if he had walked into the theater during the riot, they would have torn him apart. But we're relying on a God who can raise the dead. Now, when your faith is that in a God which can raise the dead, God has got the whole sweep of your experience in that persecution and in that loss and in that what had been despair because he's written a check for you that says at, even if they kill you God can raise the dead. And if you got to that point of course you probably wouldn't want to be raised. You're just entering bliss eternal and he says, just a second, I'm going to raise you back to put you back in that beaten up body on the outskirts of Derby and see how you live out the rest of your life. No, that's okay, I can, I, I'll stay dead. We have to learn when not relying on ourselves to not rely on all the things that we try to bring of ourselves to the situation. Again, it's nice to make the soup for your husband. It's nice to go to your girlfriend when she's feeling low and try to cheer her up. That's a good-hearted thing to do, probably even a Christian thing to do, but it's not what we're talking about here. We don't rely on, you know, believe in yourself. You're a lot better than that. self-reliance, where we're trying to cheer the person up, tell them that the facts aren't that bad, or make the pain go away. Not the kind of comfort that Jesus Christ gives us. He may liberate you. He did here. We despaired of life itself, and that was to teach us something. That we have a God who can raise the dead, and if that, everything he gives us is he a little later in this passage where we're not covering? He says, everything will be yes in him. It's not yes or no, it'll be yes. When you have a God who has, who has said, nobody gets out of here alive, this is all mine, I'm not fighting to control the universe, I just do. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now at another point, you know, Paul is liberated from various circumstances at various times, sometimes after getting beaten up, after imprisoned, after floggings, after stonings, delivered from shipwreck. Finally, for all of his pains, gets his head cut off by Nero Caesar, about 64, 65 AD. God didn't deliver him. Finally. He knew that when he's writing 2 Timothy. Time's up. I'm done. But my God, the comfort I have in my God is the despair is removed by the presence of such a God. Not because he says, don't despair, but the presence of a God who raises the dead. You're only checking your faith in it. If you believe that God raises the dead, that is more than anything else could be done in this life. We were arguing the other night in the library with some people about persecution and should a husband fight back because if he was put to death by the authorities he wouldn't be able to take care of his family and a man's got to be responsible you know because this is America and so you fight back to you know, care for your family whatever your theory is you say hold it hold it hold it it doesn't sound like you believe in a God who can raise the dead you start to face death differently if you actually believe that God can raise the dead and will raise you if that is what 
he intends to do. Abraham believed that God would raise the dead and his son had been promised to him by which God would fulfill his promise to Abraham down through history. His son had to live. Do you believe that? You don't have to go get all responsible about it. You've got a God who could raise the dead. You don't have to rely on yourself to get out of this. You have a God who can raise the dead. It's him on whom you have set your hope. You have to remember the comfort is from God, not from you making arrangements for the problem. Not you talking yourself into some state of activity that you would deal with this somehow. Or the church will deal with it somehow. We have to realize who our God is. You have to believe this, not what the... You don't say to yourself, well, the church has always believed that he could raise the dead. Yeah, but that's the church. And the church actually doesn't believe a single thing. It has no sentient mind that we got together and came up with a mindful belief. It wrote some stuff down, some people did. You either believe or you don't. And it's best that you not believe that the church believes. I'm just, you know, I don't want to even be difficult or anything. I have a small enough church. But uh, we have all sorts of ways of not believing. And one of them is to hide belief in a belief of someone else. Everything this side of the dead and past it is in your God's hands. Deliverance is one of those things. He could deliver you. He also could not deliver you and you get your head cut off. But he's a God who can raise the dead. Is your faith in him? Is your hope set in him? Not is your hope set in the kind of answer you would write of yourself if you were relying on yourself. Well, if I were in charge of this, I would get myself out of this. Right? Whatever the persecution would be, you would write a situation where those guys from ISIS would be... I don't know if you saw the story in the news where ISIS execution was about to kill this guy and his son. I mean, the sword was ready to whop their heads off and some British sniper took the guy out from, who knows, 12 miles away. Something. A long long shot. Took the guy out. Everybody goes, yes, there's an answer to prayer right there. Mm, It's good. Good stuff in war, but uh, in your world, over many centuries, Many Christians weren't saved. Our salvation, you go back there, if we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. We're not looking to be saved from the situation. The problem of the situation is the mind you develop when you have no faith in God in it. You're not being delivered from the pain because you're a little wuss and you can't stand up, you know, cry a lot if it doesn't stop hurting. God is giving you the way to deal with the despair. Despair is something that results from the narrative that's going on in your head. You notice how animals are really stoic about stuff? they got their foot in a trap. They're looking at you like... You'd think they'd just be rolling around in agony yelling, screaming. You know, I imagine they yelped a bit when it went off, but they're pretty stoic about it. You know why? They have not a clue about tomorrow. They don't have any durational concepts. They don't have any tomorrow in which they'll go, this is never going to end. I have no hope. I have only fear. And fear becoming despair. God removes the despair. He comforts us. He fluffs our intellectual pillows. 
Just said, you know, it's hurting like the dickens, I know, and I know they're going to kill you. But you know, in your world, that's no big deal. In your world, the abundance of suffering is matched by an abundance of comfort. So he asks in verse 11, You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us in answer to many prayers. The body of believers shares in this understanding not only that deliverance would happen, but they point themselves at Paul's conviction that he would be delivered in this situation. And they pray for him because they share, they, they watch the suffering, not as something that flips them out, like we can't, we can't deal with this, let's not think about it, but let's think about it and then let's lift them up in prayer that the blessing that's granted to Paul would be that he would be comforted in this so that he would understand that comfort and would comfort us in return when we suffer. You learn how to, you know how you've been through things that other people then go through. You feel really good that you're able to talk to them. You know, your parent has died and, or you went through something similar. You have an understanding. This kind of Christian comfort is something the body shares together. It is good. It, although things can come over the internet that are, you know, flat out made up stories, you know, did you know that there were X number of people killed in X, Y, or Z? There's enough real people being killed and enough Christians being killed in various places in the, in the world to keep us busy in our prayer, but we want to be understanding what we're doing. We're trying to bring for them in prayer the answer that God in prayer offers. A comfort that might not end the suffering. It defeats the suffering. For our boast is this. Oh, before I get into that, there's one other comment about the prayers of the saints. Because we want to be comforted by human endeavor to comfort us, the metaphor of fluffing the pillow for you. As Christians, we write that up as, uh, as knowing that they are praying for you. The comfort from God, although it's nice to know someone is praying for you, that's not what praying for someone is about. You pray for someone to ask God, who is the God of all comfort? to comfort them, okay? The point of the prayer is not that they would know you pray. You ever been tempted to do that? I'll, I'll pray for you. Because that's really what's important is that they think you prayed for them. And then you go home and you go, okay, I gotta, I gotta do it so I'm not a liar. But really the gift was in telling them I was gonna pray for them. The real gift is you petition God who is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. And so the saints petitioning that God to that end is really the, where the energy is. And it doesn't matter if the person prayed for knows that he was prayed for. That's a, that's a collateral good. That's a low-end good. And we end up having all of the good of our prayers be in the acknowledgement that we prayed. And we only pray to keep ourselves from being liars. But your relationship with God, you, and, and what are you asking when you take it to God in prayer? You are asking that God in his relationship to the sufferer, will, that, that, that relationship will become so real in faith that the belief in our God who raises the dead will be so unquestioned. that it sets aside no matter what pain they can dish out to you. But they're not, not fearing those that can kill the body. For our boast is this. The testimony of our conscience 
that we have behaved in the world and still more toward you with holiness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. We want to... The real tension between Paul and the Corinthians was there were other teachers that were gaining a following in Corinth and turning people against Paul. And you know, and I want to apologize for the professional class of ministers. We're not a, a charming lot. We cause most of the trouble in the Christian world. If somehow we could just have a church in the United States that didn't have any pastors at all, anywhere, especially no famous ones, you guys would be in bad shape, but probably better than you are. Not you guys in particular, but the church. There's so much jealousy, so much envy, so much selfish ambition. And that's what he was dealing with in Corinth. And he was trying to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not a slacker apostle here, guys. I, I do know what I'm doing. I do know, I do have the call of God on me. And they had come around to that. And so in this letter, he is starting 2 Corinthians, which is probably 4 Corinthians, really, because we don't have the other two books. He says, this is what I've been through. I was going through this and we shared this comfort. We share this moment. And I want you to know our boast is that we have behaved with holiness and godly sincerity by the grace of God. That's... He wants to be blended with these Corinthian Christians in this exchange of comfort and affliction. He wants his membership to be with them in Corinth the way it had been in Corinth years earlier. It's being restarted in such a way that it might go that direction. He's encouraging that care and prayerful concern. I know that I will comfort you. I know you can be praying for me in my affliction so that the comfort I get you will then benefit from He's, he's building a relationship with people. But in all, you might say, the reason I included this, although it seems to change the subject a little bit, he's not talking about comfort and affliction. He says, we have behaved with holiness and godly sincerity by the grace of God. We want to be in situations where the biblical answer, not the prissy suburban get, get well soon card is the Christianity of our lives. We want to have the Christianity of our lives be rooted in the grace of God and our faith in the grace of God. We find all sorts of ways of making our life better in the United States because at our disposal your little kid's not sitting in the front yard, in the dirt, in their diaper, or no diaper at all, with flies buzzing around their face like the average kid in Botswana. Your kid's not like that. You're all worried because you can't get your kid into the pre-pre-pre-preschool that costs you 30000 a year so that they could teach him and get him a head start so that he's not stupider than the other kids in first grade. Because you're white people with a lot of money. I'm speaking broadly, of course, not of you, because this is Idaho, we don't, any of us have any money. We stop thinking, we trust ourselves. That's what shocks us so bad. I really think, just a, I think it's a calling, it's maybe a gifting, then I should paste everyone in the face, a good one, just to let them know how much it hurts. Man, it does hurt. I've been hit in the face. If you haven't been hit in the face, man, and I know I can count on you to turn the other cheek, so I just want to... I think everybody should get into a fist fight, girls included. Everyone get hurt. Everyone find out that you can't suddenly with a hangnail or a splinter, your day comes to an end. 
We're so wealthy. We're so able. We stop giving the Christian answer or the Christian comfort that takes seriously that bad people are going to kill Christians. And you're not always going to get out of it. So what does our God do about it? What does your faith talk about? Well, we're trained to be relying on ourselves. And Paul's getting trained, you know, you can't rely on yourself. He wants the kind of Christianity, in verse 12 and thir- verse twelve there, wants the kind of Christianity recognized by the Corinthians that their behavior in holiness was relying on God's grace. It was Christian behavior. It was not affluent behavior. Are you happy because you're wealthy? So I don't even think about how much money. No, no, no. Are you happy because of what money has bought you? Now, I think that around October, I feel this sort of thing, because it's so comfortable. I can wear a jacket and not sweat. I'm comfortable. It's America. I can go, if we get a little chilly in the house, turn the heat up. And there's nothing wrong with turning the heat up. Nothing wrong with being comfortable. I'm not objecting to that. But we could have built a complete life without the grace of God. And so... It's not our holiness and godly sincerity is not resting on what we really believe. We need to look at this when we see people suffering, especially in the world, pray for them, but that we understand what we're about. We're understanding that all of us are being drawn back to believing in a God who raises the dead. There's that grace, it's that faith, it's that victory that we have not the victory that modern capitalistic America has enabled us to have all the stuff. We did. I mean, what's the old the adage, the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins? We won. We're America. Nobody's ever going to outdo us. Now, we're still going to be dead. We need to have a God that brings a comfort to the threat of you not being alive anymore. For we write nothing but what you can read and understand. I hope you will understand fully, as you have understood in part, that you can be proud of us. We need to be measuring the church at large, the church national, the church international, by God's measures of what the faith is. And that we should be looking at the people, says, when you understand fully, you can be proud of St. Paul. Wouldn't have been great to know the guy. Pick out those people that seem to reflect the grace of God bringing godliness, holiness, a behavior that's right, not a behavior that's famous. There is a real pride that is offered to us in finding the faith lived out with the kind of peace that the right acknowledgments about our God brings into your life. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. We're very grateful. In your son's name, amen.